This is Biblical Proportions with Griffin Johnson. What if I asked you the first word that came to your mind when you thought of the Old Testament? Now, if you're like me, maybe that's a word like strange or bizarre. And that's because there are a lot of these bizarre stories in the Old Testament. I mean, this is why I personally love the Old Testament so much. Stories that beckon us back to an ancient time and an ancient people. I mean, I always wonder, what were these people like? And why did they do the things that they did? And why are some of these stories even in our Bibles? You know, as Christians, we run into this great dilemma because we're supposed to be reading and understanding God's Word. But what do we do with some of these stories we read in the Old Testament? How are we even supposed to understand some of these things? One of these stories in particular that's always fascinated me comes from Genesis chapter 11. It's a story that I don't think most people really understand. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. And the story goes like this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. And the Lord came down to the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. If you're anything like me, several questions come to mind after reading a story like this. One question that has been pretty hotly debated over the past several decades is, who exactly wrote this story? And not just this one, but who wrote all of Genesis and all of the first five books of the Old Testament? Something called the Torah in Hebrew, or by its Greek name, the Pentateuch. Jewish and Christian tradition both state that Moses was the one that wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. But this traditional view has come under a lot of attack over the past several decades because of a theory called the documentary hypothesis. And without going into too much detail about this hypothesis, because let's face it, that could be its own podcast episode, the documentary hypothesis states that Instead of Moses being the sole author of the first five books of the Bible, instead it was probably an editor or editors that compiled a bunch of material together into what we currently have today. Now, it's my opinion and the opinion of a lot of really great Old Testament scholars that there are just way too many holes in this documentary hypothesis. And a lot of the problems that it has with Moses being the author are just really easily answered. 
So my take is that there just isn't a very good reason to deny Mosaic authorship. To be clear on what I mean when I say that Moses is the author of the Torah, what I don't mean is that Moses wrote every single word that was in there. Every time I have this discussion with someone that believes in this documentary hypothesis, and I try to say that Moses is the author of the Torah, their first response is always, well, what about the part where Moses dies? There's this place at the end of the book of Deuteronomy where it records Moses' death. And it should be pretty obvious that, of course, Moses didn't write that part. It's evident that what we have going on in that circumstance is somebody coming in later and adding the part about Moses' death to the end of Deuteronomy. And I think this happens a few different places. There are some clear places throughout all of the Torah where Moses simply could not have written the words that we find. So in talking about the authorship of the Torah, I don't think it has to be this either-or. Either it's only the documentary hypothesis, which I've already said is fundamentally flawed, or it's that Moses wrote every single word. So what I mean when I say that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible is that Moses wrote the core of what is there, the majority of it. So it should be attributed to him. After all, if you have a problem with Moses being the author here, then you might as well take it up with Christ himself. Because on several occasions in the Gospels, Christ will confirm that it was indeed Moses that wrote not only the first five books of the Old Testament, but the very story that we're looking at here. Authorship aside, another question that people often ponder is whether or not this story ever really happened. Did these people actually build a tower way back then? And was this really the way that all of our languages got divided up? Now, a lot of Christians believe that if it's in the Bible, then it really happened, while others simply aren't as convinced. And while I believe firmly in the reliability of God's word, I think the question of what scholars call the historicity of this story can be pretty interesting to look into. I think to answer the question of whether or not the Tower of Babel story really happened, we need to first examine what the author's actual intent was as he wrote this story. Remember, we've said that it was most likely Moses that wrote the story. So, did Moses actually mean to write this story as sort of a figurative and mythological story? Was he writing his poetry? Or did Moses actually write this story as a literal event that happened? To know what Moses was trying to communicate, it helps to know the actual language, which was Hebrew, by the way. And while I'm no expert in this area, I've read a lot of scholars that are experts. And what they have to say is that we have a lot of examples throughout the Old Testament of what Hebrew figurative language or poetry looks like. And when you read the original language that Moses wrote in Genesis, it doesn't read like any of those other examples of figurative language or poetry. In fact, what it reads like is as if Moses is writing to tell of a real event that happened. It reads like historical narrative. And interestingly enough, there also appears to be some archaeological data that could point to the reality of the story. It appears from the data that 
a long time ago in this area, which we call ancient Mesopotamia, the whole language seems to be the same. Then we reach this strange point in history where what archaeologists call the material culture, that is, uh, the stuff of their lives, the, the pottery, the writing, all of these things that they lived with, all of this material culture stays exactly the same. Nothing changes. So culture continues to go on as it had gone on before. But it's clear that there is a very prominent break in the languages, where different languages start to appear out of nowhere. And these events are happening in the exact same place that the Bible says that the Tower of Babel story happens. There's an old Sumerian inscription that speaks of an event just like this one. And in case you don't know who the Sumerians were, they were a very ancient group of people that lived in an area called Sumer, which is in modern-day Iraq. And this area is also the area that the later city of biblical fame, Babylon, would be located. It's also the area that the book of Genesis calls the land of Shinar, the very area that our story of the Tower of Babel is taking place. And there's a tablet inscription left to us by these Sumerian people that reads, quote, The whole universe, the people in one unison to Enlil in one tongue gave praise. Inki, the leader of the gods, changed the speech of man that until then had been one. End quote. And it's fascinating that the same story on this tablet inscription even talks about a man who went around building towers or temples. I think that that coincidence is really interesting. And by the way, the ancient Sumerians were not the only old group of people that has a story like this. The Assyrians, as well as the ancient people that live in modern-day Nepal, even our own Native Americans here all have stories just like this one. And it leaves me with the obvious question, are all of these ancient civilizations simply wrong as they're trying to write about how we got our different languages? You know, trying to come up with a myth to explain why the tribe they just met for the first time speaks a language that they can't understand. You know, where did that language come from? Or is it possible that all of these civilizations are remembering an actual historical event? Perhaps the one that Genesis chapter 11 describes to us. But let's talk about this actual story, the Tower of Babel. In chapter 12, we are told that after the flood, people appear to be nomadic, migrating from the east, it says in verse 2. Now, presumably the place they would be migrating from would be the final resting place of Noah's Ark. And it's for that reason that there have been a lot of, I guess you could call them, Ark hunters that have used this passage as a sort of treasure map to try to locate where the Ark is. Because if we know where the land of Shinar is, where they eventually end up, and the place they're coming from is east of that, then the Ark has to be somewhere in the mountains east of the land of Shinar. But as a couple of scholars have pointed out, it may not actually be completely clear which direction they're coming from. 
The text could say that they're migrating from the east, but it could also say that they're migrating eastward, or in other words, that they're going toward the east, which would completely change the direction that the ark is located. So try as they might, I, I'm not sure that ark hunters are going to find much of a treasure map here. But whichever direction they're coming from, we know where they end up. They end up in the land of Shinar, also known by historians as Lower Mesopotamia, or what would be called in biblical times Babylon, known to us today as the country of Iraq and the Persian Gulf. Now, there are some scholars and ancient historians who thought that it was the famous Nimrod who was the one that was leading these people in their migration and came up with the idea to found this city and build the tower. You've probably heard the name before because he was introduced a chapter earlier in Genesis, in chapter 10. In verses 8 through 12, it says, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, Like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kalah, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kalah. That is the great city. The Jewish historian Josephus, who lived in the first century AD, was one of these guys that thought it was Nimrod who was leading the people in their migration and responsible for building this city and this tower. In fact, he even gives us a little bit more detail on the situation, talking about how Nimrod encouraged the people toward a sort of prideful self-fulfillment, even going so far as to say that Nimrod eventually became a sort of tyrant. In Josephus' famous work, Jewish Antiquities, he says, quote, Now it was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and contempt of God. He was the grandson of Ham, the son of Noah, a bold man and of great strength of hand. He persuaded them not to ascribe to God as if it were through his means they were happy, but to believe that it was their own courage which procured that happiness. He also gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God, but to bring them into a constant dependence on his power. He also said he would be revenged of God if he should have a mind to drown the world again. For that, he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach. End quote. So, there you have it. Josephus sees this Nimrod guy as a tyrant. And it's Josephus' opinion that Nimrod wants to build this tower because he's afraid of another flood and thinks he can escape it, if it happens again, by building a tower that's high enough. Now, if Nimrod is the one responsible here, then it's possible that after the failure and dispersion of the people at Babel that he just moved around through ancient Mesopotamia building cities to replicate Babel. After all, chapter 10 of Genesis does tell us that he's responsible for building a great number of cities in the area. We've learned from archaeology that there are a ton of these ancient structures that are possibly similar to the same one built in Babel, dotting the landscape 
of what was ancient Mesopotamia. More on the actual structure of the tower in a moment. And Josephus wasn't the only one to suggest a connection between Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. The very studied Bible I have out in front of me links the man and the event together. And while we can't be sure of the connection between Nimrod and the tower, there is at least a connection within the text of proximity, if nothing else, being a mere chapter apart. So either Nimrod is the one responsible for the events of Babel, or the Bible wants us to at least see that they're happening around the same time, sort of both part of this post-flood environment. And this is an environment which fascinates me, by the way. I can't help but wonder, what was this time like? What were the people like? I think if I could go back in history and meet, you know, maybe a top five list of people that I could meet, I really think Nimrod would be on that list. There are, of course, rumors, if you read some of the more conspiratorial historical accounts, of what some of the technology was like before the Flood. I'm talking about civilizations being just as advanced as we are today. And while I'm not sure that I agree with that notion of history, if it is true that the pre-Flood world was incredibly advanced, did any of that technology carry over after the Flood? I mean, did Noah and his family and his sons remember any of the things they had learned before the Flood? And if so, did they use any of that technology in their building of this city, Babel, or the tower that was in it? It's a fascinating concept, and I'm not sure that we'll ever know. Maybe we can rely on archaeology to continue to find things to point us to what the time was like back then. That's one reason why archaeology fascinates me so much, trying to get as close of a picture of what the time was like as we can. And according to Josephus, we can apparently know at least one thing about this civilization that existed right after the flood. We at least know that they were motivated by a fear of what happened during the flood ever happening again. The quote that I mentioned earlier from Josephus talked about how Nimrod wanted to build this great tower so high that if God ever flooded the world again, the tower would be untouchable. Earlier in this writing that I got the quote from, Josephus is going to mention how these people, the descendants of Noah, are going to be really afraid to come out of the mountainous region that they'd been living in from the time that the ark landed there. Because they're afraid of this flood happening again. I mean, what if they go down into the lower lands and another flood happens? They'd be trapped. The mountains were safe to them. And I think that it's fascinating, the fear that motivated the things that they did. I mean, these, these ancient people we can't even fathom today had real fears, real motivations. It gives them a little bit of a sense of humanity. They're not too distant ancestors. Maybe grandparents or great-grandparents had just been through this catastrophic event. What was that like? You know, had they passed down stories to a couple of generations about what that was like? Was the memory of this horrific flood etched in the memory banks of the people that lived at this time? I mean, it must have been because they were 
terrified of it happening again. Whatever these people's motivations, fear or pride or otherwise, they end up migrating into the plain of Shinar. And it's there that we're told in verse 4 that they put their energies towards building a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Now, I promised we'd talk more about this tower structure. And the first thing that's important to know is that it almost certainly was not a tower in the way that we think of it. We all have those images from our childhood of almost a leaning tower of pizza-like structure circling up into the clouds. It's probably safe to erase that image from our minds because it probably looked nothing like that at all. In fact, what most scholars and archaeologists think this Tower of Babel looked like was an ancient temple structure called a ziggurat. These ziggurats were all over the place in this area. I mentioned earlier that archaeologists have found these ziggurats to dot the landscape of what I called ancient Mesopotamia. A lot of these structures even date as far back to pretty close to when this actual story in Genesis chapter 11 is taking place. And almost all scholars agree that this Tower of Babel had to be one of these ziggurats. I like to think of it as maybe a proto-ziggurat structure, or maybe it was the people of that area's first attempt at building one of these temples. The most noteworthy ziggurat is one called Etimenanki, and while this dates quite a bit later to the Babylonian Empire, archaeologists have been able to find out a lot about this structure and to figure out what these temples looked like in general. Etimenanki was almost 300 feet tall, with six different levels of these stepped terraces, and each level, the higher up you go, was smaller than the level before it. So if you're trying to get a picture of this, think a four-sided stepped pyramid. The biblical story tells us in verse 3 of chapter 11 that the tower was made with fired brick and bitumen, or tar. And it's fascinating that we now know from historical records that these were the very same building materials that were used to build all of these other ancient temple structures, the ziggurats. The Enuma Elish, a famous old Babylonian epic, when describing the building materials used for Marduk's temple, Esagila, it describes these very same materials as well, fire brick and bitumen, in the building of that temple. And bitumen is actually just asphalt, and it's not necessarily asphalt in the way that we think of it here in the United States. We often call concrete asphalt. And while concrete isn't technically asphalt, one of the materials that makes up concrete is asphalt. This asphalt or bitumen is a form of petroleum, and it's used as a kind of glue to hold things together. And it is readily available in this very area of the world. And I think it's fascinating and impressive, to say the least, that the biblical reporting on this story gets the building material exactly right for what these structures would have been made of. Now, some of these structures could have even been colorful with these glazed tiles placed on the surface. 
It's been suggested that they were built to look like mountains. And it fascinates me that these ancient people seem to look at mountains in some interesting ways, sort of as these divine or holy places. And we've already heard from the historian Josephus that they apparently were were scared to come out of the mountains after the flood happened. So whatever it is, there's a strange fascination that these people have with mountains. And it could have been that these temples were made to be like mountains, to look like perhaps the mountains that they had just come from after the flood. The top of these ziggurats may have been painted with a type of blue enamel to blend into the sky as well, because it was thought that the sky was the home of the gods, and maybe that's where they get their fascination with mountains from. Because mountains are obviously closer to the sky than you are when you're in the lowland. And they really thought of these ziggurats as a gateway to the divine. So they're not really trying to reach heaven in a literal sense. We often have that picture of the tower spiraling into the clouds that I mentioned earlier. This idea that they're trying to build a tower so high that they can reach up to God. It's probably not what they were trying to do in any way, but they were trying to, in a sense, reach heaven by bringing it down to earth, because apparently the purpose of these things was to establish some sort of direct connection with the gods, sort of a pathway down to earth. This is almost certainly what the sanctuary piece at the very top was for. So, suffice it to say that the picture that we have in our minds for this Tower of Babel or reaching into the clouds or trying to build a tower that will reach all the way up to God was not what these things were like at all. Now, I mentioned earlier that these sort of ziggurat temple structures were found all over ancient Mesopotamia, but they're actually really found over more of the world than just that. Even in these different far-off parts of the world, such as a place like Chichen Itza in Mexico. I mean, you look at the structure at Chichen Itza, and it is scarily close to one of these ziggurats. It's a four-sided stepped pyramid. These things are found all over the world, from Mesopotamia to Mexico to Africa and Southeast Asia. I mean, they're all over the place. And I don't know how you account for something like that. Maybe this building technology spread from Nimrod, if it was in fact him, and this civilization that leaves the mountains after the flood and spreads all over the world. But somehow, and for some reason, all of these ancient temple structures around the world look very similar. Even the ancient pyramids in Egypt are pretty close to these ziggurat structures. But back to our people in the land of Shinar. They build their tower or temple, and clearly God isn't very happy with it. But I'm always struck that it isn't altogether clear why God isn't happy that they're building this tower. But I think that there are a couple of implications from the text just as to what their sin actually is. First of all, I think it's pretty clear that 
one of the purposes that they're building this tower is as an expression of pride in their own achievement. I mean, verse 4 is pretty clear about this when they say, let us make a name for ourselves. And this is an easy one, right? It's clearly a sin. Pride is one of the great sins of humanity. But there's another reason for building the tower that I think is often missed. And by the way, I think the reasons for their building and the sin is the same thing, right? The reason why they're building the tower is the sin that they're committing that God is getting upset with. And the other reason or sin that is so often overlooked is the fact that these people don't want to be scattered over the earth. Verse 4, right after they proclaim that they want to make a name for themselves, they also say, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, one might wonder, why is this such a big deal? Who cares if they don't want to spread out over the face of the earth? But we often pay little attention to a command that God gives to Noah right after the flood. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Clearly, for some reason, God wants these people to be spreading out, to be fruitful, to multiply and fill all of the earth. This, by the way, is the same command that he gives to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1. So what we find in the story of the Tower of Babel is the first instance where mankind decides to do the opposite of this. And what they're essentially trying to do is, instead of spreading out, instead of scattering and filling the earth... What they're doing is sort of hunkering down and trying to unify under one central power or one central man. If you believe Josephus' account that it's Nimrod that's sort of becoming a tyrant over the people. Now, there are some dangers that I think come from this idea of not spreading out, but instead trying to unify, get under one central power. As we've seen as humans too often throughout the course of human history, when power is consolidated under one individual, and really it depends on who the individual is, but more often than not, the individual turns out to be evil. This is typically not a good idea for humanity. And the individual, whoever they may be, often tends to not look out for the well-being of the citizens. After all, humans are, are fallen and sinful creatures. So the idea that we would put the authority under one man, one ruler, is often not a good idea. And perhaps God knew what the inevitable outcome of this would be. And maybe this is at least one reason that he didn't want them to unify under one central power, why he wanted them to spread out. Nevertheless, they don't do this. And, I mean, we mentioned pride as being part of this sin. I'm not even mentioning the whole idea of trying to connect with the divine in the way that they're doing, trying to make this sort of a bridge between the human and the divine with the ziggurat that they're making. That is a whole other sort of sin that they're involved in. Nevertheless, God clearly is not happy. And in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 11, it reads, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language 
so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. And thus ends their little human experiment. By the way, it's interesting, who is the us that's being talked about in verse 7? It says, come let us go down and confuse their language. A couple of opinions here could be that God's talking about angels. I mean, there are certainly other places in the Bible where angels are used to assist in God's judgment. I'm thinking of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19, places like Matthew 25, 31, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7. You can feel free to go look those up on your own. And even angels are apparently in charge of nations if you look at Daniel chapter 10. So it's certainly possible that uh, I guess the us could be referring to angelic beings. I think it's probably more possible that it's a reference to the Trinity. You know, the three persons of the Godhead. This would not be the only place that an us or a plural is talked about when talking about the Godhead. I think that Genesis chapter 1, where God says, let us make man in our own image, is another one of these examples. And it's interesting when uh, sort of the judgment comes on Babel and the tower that they're building there. You know, they're attempting to make a great name for themselves. That's one of the things that the text says that they're doing. And God has to come down and see it, almost as if it's too small for God to see from his throne. And it reminds me of Psalm chapter 2, which says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. There's this almost funny idea of God laughing at what they're doing. He has to come down to see what they think is this great and prideful building project that they're undertaking. And I read one analogy that said that this is sort of like a human kicking over an anthill, and the ants just sort of scatter everywhere. And I think that analogy works so well because it pictures these prideful people thinking that they're doing something so great, and God having to come down and see what they're doing, and then dispersing the people, changing their language. And scatter they certainly do because the text says that as a consequence of this, the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth. So if they won't fulfill God's command to scatter over the earth, then he'll do it for them. And in spite of this rebellion, and let's face it, it is exactly that, God, though, still fulfills his original design, a design that God so wanted to be fulfilled that, according to one scholar, humans, at one point in time, had the ability to spread to all continents using land bridges that were there. You know, we've probably all heard that Alaska and Russia are so close, and there's evidence that there could have been one point in time in which they were connected. And it's this scholar's idea that there were these land bridges, and once people had scattered enough to fill all of the continents, 
God covered over them with water so that it would prevent the people from regathering and committing the same type of sin that they committed with the whole Tower of Babel incident. And this scholar even provides some interesting scientific evidence for this. Whether or not this is true, I think it is clear that it's God's design for humanity to fill his good creation. And it's out of this design, I believe, and I believe the text speaks to this pretty clearly, that God changes the language of the people there at Babel and causes them to spread out over the face of the earth. And there are some interesting implications for us today regarding God's desire for mankind to spread out, to not merge together as one. And this, by the way, is, I think, one of the central themes to this story that we often miss. And there's one scholar that I read that makes an interesting statement about the present-day implications that this story of Babel has for us. An Old Testament scholar named Bruce Waltke says, quote, Instead of scattering and depending on God, they chose to usurp his heavenly dominion. Today, the United Nations building advances the long shadow of Babylon's iconic tower. Both are symbols of humanity's vain effort to reunite and secure peace apart from God's gift of the Prince of Peace. Mathematics and science, which form the new universal language, attempt to undo the judgment of Babel. Through this new language, what human beings can achieve seems to have no limit. Whatever they can do, they do. Even building orbiting space stations to defy their restrictions to Earth. Having pillaged Earth, they hope to pillage space to gratify their greed. End quote. If you were ever wondering if moral dilemmas could be found to things like the UN or space travel, well, there you go. <laughs> and maybe we haven't learned our lesson after all. Perhaps, if this scholar is correct, we're still looking to unify ourselves apart from our Creator. There is one last interesting connection, and you know, I always like to connect these Old Testament events to the larger story of the Bible, because I think that they all do, and when we don't understand their connection to the, the larger story of the Bible, I think we lose our understanding of what these Old Testament stories meant. This incident at Babel can be seen not only as God confusing the language, but also as God disinheriting the nations because of their sins. And the placement of the story in the narrative of Genesis is precise. It makes sense to have in chapter 10 the list, or what is called the Table of Nations, followed immediately by the event that precipitated God's disinheriting them. And the Jews reading this story certainly understood this point. Later, we will find in the New Testament where it reveals God's historic plan to reconcile these nations of the world back to himself once and for all under his Messiah, Jesus. This is why Paul writes things like Ephesians 3.6 where he says that the great mystery of the gospel of Jesus is that the Gentile nations are also heirs in Christ, not just the Jews. And again, in 2 Corinthians 5.9, where he says that in Christ, God is reconciling the world back to himself. 
God's plan all along, ever since this Tower of Babel event, was to bring the once disinherited nations of the world back to him. The plan included choosing a special nation, Israel, through which his mission would be accomplished. And it's no coincidence that the very next event in Genesis, after the Tower of Babel, where the nations are disinherited by God, is the calling of Abraham in chapter 12, the beginning of God's mission to reconcile the rebellious nations of the world back to him through his chosen nation, the Israelites, and eventually through the Messiah, his son Jesus. So in a way, the story of the Tower of Babel is not just some interesting story we tell in VBS, but a story of massive importance to the purpose of the entire biblical narrative. So while these people at Babel were trying to unify humanity under their own banner, I think it is true that God does have a priority to unify humanity under one banner. I'm reminded of passages like Zephaniah 3.9, which says, At the time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. There is certainly this biblical idea that looks towards the future where one day God will give us one speech with which we can call on his name, serve him, and praise him. The idea that God wants to unify us under a banner, but not under our banner, under his banner. And isn't this what we see partially happening at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? If the Tower of Babel can be seen as this scattering of languages, the day of Pentecost can be seen as language and communication being partially brought back together. A mile marker of sorts along God's plan to reconcile the nations to himself. And at the day of Pentecost, we see a partial reversal of this curse of the Tower of Babel. If you remember from Acts chapter 2, the story of the day of Pentecost, all of the Jews are in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of Weeks. And we are told that the Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles as tongues of fire. And the apostles are able to speak all of the people's languages so that they can understand and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ for themselves. This is a partial reversal of Babel. But this event points to a yet future day when this unity of the people will finally and fully be realized. And all nations will have one voice and will use it to praise the mighty acts of God and Jesus Christ. This is the forward-looking picture of the entire story of Scripture. And the story of the Tower of Babel is a central cog in the wheel of that story. After all, as Revelation 7 verses 9 through 10 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Certainly, there will be a day in the future where language 
is not scattered or separated as God did in Genesis chapter 11. When that day comes, all of us with one language will certainly praise the God who is worthy of praise. Thanks for listening to Biblical Proportions. If you haven't already, go ahead and click subscribe on the podcast and download the episodes because that helps us and iTunes know who's listening. Also, make sure you go to our website, www.biblicalproportionspodcast.com to check out the sources used for each episode under the Sources tab. Finally, if you think what we're doing here is worthwhile, then we sure would appreciate your support. On the website, there's a place where you can give your support to what we're doing at Biblical Proportions and assist us in continuing to put out content like what you just listened to. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.